sufficient. Thank you, God, that you teach us how to walk with you and how to love you, how to serve you all the days of our life. We pray as we look at 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John that we would learn about faithfulness in a world where there's chaos, in a world where people uh, go after the desires of themselves rather than you. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we are in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Anybody want to take a guess at who wrote this letter? Anybody? It's going to be hard. This may be the hardest question I ask you all day. Who wrote the letters to 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John? Oh, John! Wow, amazing. Okay, good. We're starting off on a great note. I'm so happy, so proud of you all. Um, Okay, does anybody kind of know the context of John's story as he was writing letters to churches. Just give me some background information. What do you know about John? He's one of the apostles. Okay. Did he write anything else in the Bible? John. Okay. John's gospel. All right. Uh, Anything outside of John's gospel and first, second, third John? Everybody's favorite book in the whole wide world to study, Revelation, right? Um, interesting, uh, I, back in 2017, I went to Turkey, and uh, I got to spend a week in Istanbul. And while I was there, I flew from Istanbul down to Ephesus and was able to walk through the ruins of the city and see the Ephesian like church and where they would gather. It was really cool to see um, actually, the picture for our New Testament survey class on our, our bulletins, um, that actually is a picture of Ephesus. And um, what's neat about that is that apparently most of John's time after he had spent uh, time in Jerusalem was toward Turkey and Ephesus. So uh, people say that Patmos, the island that he was <clears throat> exiled to, uh, was somewhere in the Mediterranean near Turkey. So uh, just interesting fact of the day. When we come to 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, we're going to be talking about primarily the love of the kingdom, the love of the kingdom. Uh, When asked what the greatest commandment was, Jesus responded that we are to love the Lord our God and that we are to love our neighbor. Okay. Now to our modern ears, that needs some defining, right? Love God, love neighbor, right? Even in Jesus' day, this was a question that people would pose to him. What does it mean to love God and love others? So often our culture evaluates the quality of love by its sincerity and freeness. Sincerity and freeness. We think, okay, the more sincere I am, the more uh, freedom I allow to love, that means that I'm actually loving. So on the one hand, love is a sentiment, right? Where we can think of like warm puppy dog kisses, right? Those are cute and smelly, right? Warm puppy dog kisses. And on the other hand, it makes no obligations or requirements on the object of its love, right? Love is never having to say, I'm sorry. At least that's the way the world defines love. Or we can see love through the the lens of the latest Hollywood romance film, Love is sparked by a random interaction, right? Everybody know the, ha- the Hallmark plot, right? Yeah. right? 
There's some girl in a small town that's working in a bakery who meets this guy and they just happen to bump into each other. And the next thing you know, there's all of these interactions. They're bumping in and then true love erupts, right? Then there's always a twist, right? There is some sort of conflict. It's like, he could never love me. It's usually because she never tells him how she actually feels, right? I've, I've seen enough of these. It just took one to figure it out, okay? <laughs> I like to think Garfinder says love is radical acceptance. Uh. Yeah, love is radical acceptance. That's a, a definitely maybe the proverb of the day. Um, when we think of love based on interactions, we need to not only ask ourselves what is the way that the world loves today, but primarily what is the love of the kingdom, this love of God and love of neighbor? What does it look like? Is it a positive feeling? When Jesus commands his followers to love God and to love one another, is he simply telling us that we should like each other and consider God our friend? Uh, No, that's fair enough, but I'm guessing that most of us here don't think that way. But especially if you're a Christian, where would you go in scripture to prove that this overly sentimental, hollow-sounding conception of love is wrong? And positively, what is the alternative? We could probably think of passages like 1 Corinthians 13, right? The love chapter. I want to make the argument that maybe we should actually look to 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John to show us what love for God and love for neighbor is. It's a good thing to keep in mind as we come into these epistles. As Jesus' example of washing the disciples' feet illustrated, the love of the kingdom is profoundly different from the culture's idea of love, both in its depth and in its expression. Ultimately, this kind of love is supremely defined by the cross, where God demonstrated that he is love. And because we are radically undeserving of his love, his love is characterized by mercy, humility, and sacrifice. John, who had his feet washed by Jesus, was transformed by the love of the kingdom. And in in John's three letters, he explains just what that love was and the effect it should have on our lives as subjects of Jesus Christ and how this sort of love makes all the difference in showing that our Christianity is real and not counterfeit. So if we think of the background to John's epistles, while these epistles are technically anonymous, there's a, a strong internal and external evidence that the author is indeed John the Apostle. We get it from the title, but there's other things that give us uh, note to be able to see that these are actually written by John. In 1 John, the author makes a a clear claim to be an apostle from the very beginning. If you look at 1 John 1, verses 1 through 3, what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we observed and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life that was revealed and we have seen it, And we testify and declare to you that eternal life was with the Father and was revealed to us. What we have seen and heard, we also declare to you so that you may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Here, John claims that he is one of the we who 
did things like saw, touched, and heard the word of life. And the language is, is clearly similar to the language of the fourth gospel. If, as we argued in the class on John's gospel, that John the apostle wrote the gospel, and we see an apostle wrote first John, it seems almost certain that John is that apostle. Additionally, all the earliest church witnesses attribute these three epistles to John uh, the Apostle. We don't know exactly when John wrote these three letters, but they were probably written toward the end of his life, about the same time that he wrote the gospel, which would place it around somewhere like 90 AD. Okay, 90 AD. The second two letters are both written in anticipation of a personal visit, or 2 John addressed to a church, and 3 John addressed to an individual named Gaius. They are both largely concerned with warnings about supporting false teachers and encouragements to show genuine hospitality to Christian preachers. Uh, so we're going to spend a majority of our time this morning in the largest of the three letters, 1 John. So let's, let's dive in there. So what's the purpose of 1 John? <clears throat> 1 John can actually be quite a difficult book to understand, um, especially if we pull all the, the verses out of context from uh, the entire book. It's essential that with this book, and maybe even more within the entirety of the New Testament, that we understand the overarching aim of this letter. So look at 1 John 5, verse 13. 1 John 5, 13. If somebody could, could you please read 1 John 5, 13? There's nothing in the printer queue that says there's something. Okay. So Matt is asking if you could reprint it. All right. Um, can you grab my laptop and bring it down to me? Yeah. It's in my backpack. Thanks. Yep. First John five thirteen. Anybody got that? I've written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. Yeah. And, and this is the confidence that we have toward Him that if we ask anything. According to his will, he hears us. So the reason, as we see in this book, is that there was rampant false teaching concerning the person and work of Jesus. So John writes to oppose this teaching and provides categories by which believers could be assured of their salvation. Now let's look at uh, 1 John 2, verses 22 and 23. Whoever gets that, go ahead and read that for us. 1 John 2, verses 22 and 23. So John is trying to address for us false teachers. And I just want to give you a few things that we see within these passages uh, that, that he's saying about the false teachers. So the first thing I want you to see is that John says these false teachers claim that they have no sin. If we look at 1 John 1, uh, verse 8, it says, If we say we have no sins, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So false teachers say they have no no sin. In the passage that Gail just read, what do you think uh, the false teachers are saying there? Uh, 
They're denying Jesus is the Christ. In particular, they're denying that Jesus came in the flesh. They say things like, well, Jesus was just a man, right? He was just a good guy. This is like a modern day heresy, right? We, we hear this, like Jesus was just a good teacher. He was just a good person. Three, they say in, in, in chapter five, verse six, that Jesus did not atone for our sin. Sorry, I guess I got to clean the board and clean the marker. Um, so that's the third characteristic. Fourth, these false teachers did not love other Christians. Okay, They didn't love other Christians. They were selfish and prideful and lovers of self. No love for other Christians. And they did not care, according to chapter 3, verses 6 through 8, they did not care for their holiness. So those are some of the main characteristics from John's letter that we can see of false teachers. Now, what I'm not going to say is that this is the case for every false teacher. Right? I'm not going to say that every false teacher falls into these five characteristics. But in John's writing to his churches in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, we see at least these characteristics of false teachers. These were the things that he was primarily concerned with, at least in 1st John uh, in, in that writing. <clears throat> What's interesting about these false teachers is that they did seem to be saying that Christians who disagreed with them, namely those who were following Christ through the apostles' teaching, were in fact not Christians at all. Okay? So they were saying things like, these guys are not Christians at all because they follow Jesus and his teaching. <laughs> And so John writes really from two perspectives. He's writing from a doctrinal perspective where he is trying to refute these false teachers, trying to say this is what is right, this is what is true. But in the other side of his writing, he's writing pastorally. He wants to give his followers grounds for assurance given the doubt uh, that the false teachers were sowing in their minds. And it's not like a, a blanket assurance, right? It's that, what's the most blanket assurance we can give anybody? What comes to your mind? If you wanted to assure somebody, what would you say to them to make them feel assured? Yeah. Oh, assured of like what? Death and taxes. Death and taxes. That's something you can be assured of. <laughs> that, that is definitely something you can be assured of in the life. Well, that's very close to my mind. <laughs> Carol, I love what comes to your mind first. It always amuses me. Okay, if you were to try to say, like, try, say you were trying to convince a kid of something, right? And you're like, this is the way it's going to be. I, I can give this example. I think Rachel, when she was in elementary school, said that she thought that her teacher was 85, right? And 
her teacher was really like 40 something. She was just trying to like be cute with Rachel and be like, no, I'm 85. And so when her, she came to her mom, she's like, mom, my teacher is 85. And she's like, no, she's not Rachel. Right. And Rachel responds with, that's what she said. Right. That's what she said. I trust what she said. Right. So the most blanket assurance we can give anybody is just take my word for it. Right. Just take my word for it. So these false teachers say things like, hey, Jesus wasn't actually the son of God who atoned for sin. Just take my word for it. Just trust me. Just hear what I've got to say. That's not the kind of assurance John is trying to give his believers here. He's not just saying, hey, just take my word for it. Assurance is grounded in solid evidence so that people could assess their own lives and see the evidence of God's grace. Think back to the introduction. John said he was one who heard, who had seen, who had touched with his own hands, that had been revealed to and seen and testified and declared about the word of life. We've heard him. We've seen him. We declare it to you. He's not just saying, just trust me. He's saying, I'm not just speaking. This is not just my thought. Here's the proof. The proof proof to the pudding. So in these two purposes, right, to write doctrinally and write pastorally, we see the real beauty of 1 John. It's a doctrinal treatise, yes, but one designed to be applied directly to our hearts that we might know that we are, in fact, in Christ. And this is the key to trying to understand doctrine, right? Because we all probably know theologians who have lots of knowledge in their head, but when it comes to loving people in Christ, their hearts are as hard as stone, right? Now, that's just not helpful, right? It's not to say that it all has to be feelings of love and admiration for others, but in a way, doctrine needs to be connected with practical love towards others. Right? Doctrine needs to take life and have legs and, and have feeling. Right? So when you're studying to try to understand the things of God, remember that you're studying to pursue God. <laughs> you're coming to him. You're running to him. You're running to his word. You're trying to understand who he is. So if we were to look at the outline of 1 John. Let me just explain how we're going to uh, approach this book in one sense. First John is difficult to read because as much as we like him to do, John doesn't stick to one train of argument as the Apostle Paul so often does. Instead, you might think of this book as a number of themes that John returns to again and again, kind of like cycles that he repeats. So as we come to this reading... It's helpful for us in another sense to look at this as a delightful read because it's so evident that he is pastoring us. He's not arguing with us. He's trying to pastor us. His book feels less like a legal treatise and more of like a conversation that you might have with your pastor. Repeating the same truths again and again in slightly different ways to assure you of the confidence that you have in Christ. So the outline of the book, the introduction is in verse, uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, uh, proclaiming the word of life. 
The first meditation we see is in chapter 1, verse 5, all the way through chapter 2, verse 14, which is a meditation on assurance. How do we know that we are in Christ? The simple answer to that is by looking at the fruit of our lives. Looking at the fruit of our lives. Okay, can somebody read 1 John 1, 5 through 7? This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you God's light. In him there is no darkness at all. If you claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. Yeah, so we know that we are in Christ if we walk in the light. But John is quick to clarify this. Walking in the light doesn't mean that we never sin. Look at at chapter 1, verse 10. It says, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. And then chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, he has an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So, He's not saying that we never struggle with sin. He's saying we walk in the light. And John continues by saying in in chapter 2, verse 5, that obedience to God's commands is another sign that we're in Christ. So it's another sign of obedience, specifically the obedience of loving other brothers in Christ. Look at chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. Whoever says that he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light. And then John closes this section very pastorally, identifying evidences of grace in his readers to assure them that they are in fact in Christ, that they do meet these tests. So look at chapter 2, verse 12. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. Sometimes John's standards seem impossibly high, and so it's really good to remember verses like this one so that we can be assured of our salvation because we have trusted in Christ for forgiveness. So John affirms to his readers that they have met this standard. If you say you walk in the light, but there's darkness in you, there is no light in you. You're going to struggle with sin, but you have an advocate. If you go to the advocate, you run to him. There is indeed forgiveness. If you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So first he offers a meditation on assurance. But then John offers a warning against following the world in chapter 2, verses 15 through 27. In verse 15, he says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Then he picks up, again on the topic of assurance, echoing many of the things that he said before. So as he gives the, the meditation, then he gives a warning. Right? Here's the meditation. You can be assured of your salvation through the forgiveness of Christ. Here's the warning. Don't love the world or the things of the world. And then we see in chapter 2, verse 28, all the way through chapter 4, verse 6, meditations on assurance again. He says, We know who we are in Christ if we do what is right. 
chapter 2, verse 28 to 310. So listen to this, like chapter 3, verse 6. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. And like earlier, he says, we know we are in Christ if we love one another. So uh, chapter 3, verse 16. By this we know love that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But it's not only obedience and love that affirm our assurance. Importantly, John reminds us of the Holy Spirit's presence in the confirmation of our position in Christ. So chapter 3, verse 24. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. So the Holy Spirit's playing a massive role in reminding us of the assurance we have in Christ, the actual position we have in Christ. So just as he had meditation then warning, after this section, he goes from meditation to an exhortation, okay? In chapter 4, verse 7 through 5, 12, an exhortation particularly toward love and faith. On love... He says in chapter four, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent him to his son uh, to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And then in faith, he says this in chapter five, whoever believes in the son of God has the testimony in himself. So he goes from meditation on assurance to warning meditation on assurance to exhortation love god and then have faith in him and then he's got concluding remarks in chapter 5 verses 13 through 21 so that's a a rapid over like fire of the overview of the book okay rapid fire of overview so if we look at uh three main themes that come out of this book. A good summary for what we'll see is John, 1 John 3, verses 23 through 24. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commands abides in God and God in him. And by this, we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he gives us. So the three tests that we're going to see John provide for knowing whether or not we are Christians are are this. First is the doctrinal test. Do you believe the right things about who Jesus is? So there's a test of doctrine. Do you believe believe the right things? The second is a moral test. Do you obey the commands of God? Do you obey the commands of God? So we have doctrinal, moral, and then the third is a social test. Do you love the people of God? Do you love the people of God? So the doctrinal test. Let's look at chapter 2, verse 22. It says, Who is the liar, if not the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This one is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. So throughout his writing, we see John countering false teachers 
who are denying that Jesus is fully God and fully man. These teachers separated out, out Christ's divine spirit and his fleshly body, his divine spirit and his fleshly body. Uh, and for us today, that might seem a little bit like an academic exercise, but I just I want to highlight maybe a common thread that I see in more Pentecostal circles where they emphasize this reality of like the heavenly realm versus the fleshly realm, right? the spiritual things over the, the fleshly things. Others that wonder if focusing on doctrine makes us arrogant, why should we do it at all? Right? So there's like the, the spiritual exercise of, is this good for us? And then the doctrinal exercise of like, is doctrine even worth pursuing? How, how many of you have heard the argument, doctrine just divides people? Right? I've heard that argument a bunch of times. And it's like, why are there so many denominations? Is that you know, the way it's supposed to be? Why, why is there so much divide within Christianity? There are good reasons for divide. Right? But there are also bad reasons. When we think of doctrine, we need to focus on what is important, but what is ultimately true about God. The idea of studying theology, theology literally broken out, the word means the study of God. So is false teaching merely an academic exercise? I think the answer to that is no. False teaching is not merely an academic exercise. Is it a roadblock to unity? I don't think at all that that's the case. Without a fully human and fully divine mediator, we cannot have the atoning sacrifice for sin that we need. A sacrifice that is both made by an appropriate representative of the human race and one that is infinitely valuable. Believing in the full humanity and full divinity of Jesus is of paramount gospel significance. Even key to knowing who the Holy Spirit is. If we look at chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, it says, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. So it is crucial for believers to have a right belief for their assurance of salvation. Getting rid of central doctrine makes no more sense than jettisoning the engine of a truck because it's too heavy and can slow us down. So yes, sometimes doctrine divides. Yes, sometimes discussing doctrine can seem not that immediately practical. But without the truth of the gospel, the whole thing is really less than worthless. But when it comes to like doctrinal things, I just want to remind you guys of what you may have seen in membership classes. Okay. We have a pyramid of things when we think of doctrine. We have to think of what's first order, what's second order, and what is third order, or what's primary, what's secondary, what's an area of liberty. Okay. So when we say doctrinal clarity, like what, what John is saying here, Jesus being the son of God, fully God, fully man, is something of first order. Okay? So this is something that we take and we say, this is what the Bible says we've got a closed fist. Okay? 
The Bible clearly communicates who Jesus is. On the other hand, there are issues that often are in the second and third orders that become things that people discuss in differences, and they make them like first order issues, and that's where the divide becomes unhelpful. Right? So, like second order things, how is the government of your church? Are you Congregationalists? Are you Presbyterians where elders make all of the decisions and the congregation only votes on a budget, right? Um, are like areas of third order, what political party do you vote for, right? These are areas of liberty. Now, within these things, we should be saying, what does God's word teach us and guide us in basic principles to help us lead to conclusions on? But there are differences that keep us within orthodoxy, right? keep us Christian. So, as long as we can remember that second and third order things are just that, they're second and third order things, we'll be in good shape. We'll know how to fight well. Right? Those are good, healthy discussions of disagreement. Those are not necessarily negative discussions of disagreement. They can become that when our pride gets in the way and we make them into first order things. So often we are most concerned with attacks on Christianity and the gospel by atheists and skeptics. Yet, 1 John serves as an example to us that the greatest dangers that the church faces are not from the likes of Sam Harris, Richard Dawkins, or Christopher Hitchens. The real danger is not unbelief, but wrong belief. Not irreligion, but heresy. Not the doubter, but the deceiver. Wrong belief, heresy, and deceivers are what concern John. So John refutes the idea that Christ was merely a fleshless, impersonal principle that we tap into for higher energy. He also refutes the idea that Jesus was merely a teacher who taught the way of God, who became hungry and tired, and who one day bled to die. No, he argues that Jesus was God himself. We must get the doctrine of, of Christ's person right as John presents it because our salvation hangs on it. If Jesus isn't who he says he is, we are not saved. But clearly, as John is concerned, doctrine alone is not enough. We know that from James that even the demons had the right beliefs about the things of Jesus. And so John gives us another test for knowing that we're in Christ, and that's the test of, uh, of our morals. At chapter 3, verse 7 through 10, John says, Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Such black and white teaching, isn't it? Does it mean that if I sin, I'm no longer a child of God? Of course not. Look back at earlier in, in 1 John to refute that erroneous thought. Like in chapter 2, verse 1, right? The, the Christian that sins, Jesus speaks to the Father in our defense. He's our advocate. 
Remember that in this book, especially, we need to take each piece in light of the whole. But at the same time, don't let, the soft, or don't let that soften the sharp point that John is making. John states things in black and white ways in this letter. Like, anyone who does not do what is right is not a child of God. And that's incredibly convicting in casting the light of simplicity into our lives as Christians. First John is so useful in the sense it gives us full nuance and context, but in particular verses, it shows us how simple things really are. What John is saying in this passage is that if you are a child of God, you will live like God. If you are a child of the devil, you will live like the devil. That's all there is to it. Now, no Christian perfectly lives like God And thankfully, no non-Christian lives exactly like the devil. Still, the contrast between love of the world versus love of God, light versus darkness, and children of God versus the children of the devil are stark and absolute. Your life will display one general pattern or another. In all of this, John certainly is not saying that nice people are Christians, right? All of us know nice people who are not Christians. Many of us, before we were Christians, were nice people. No, the moral test is subsequent to the doctrinal test. You might say it is the proof of the doctrinal test. So we've got the doctrinal test, the moral test, and then the final test is the social test. So one of the first ways we know that we are obeying the moral test John provides is that whether we are loving one another... 1 John 4, 19 through 21, we love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. (laughs) That's so strong, isn't it? He's a liar. For he does not love his own brother whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. So what makes us think that we love God? Is it doctrinal correctness? Is it our meticulous obedience? Or is it that warm, fuzzy feeling that we get when you sing his praises? Well, those will be shown to be only a mirage of our love for God if it's not demonstrated for love of his people. Jesus so identifies with his people that he says that our attitude toward Christians is our attitude toward him. John is explicitly clear throughout this book on this point. In 1 John 3.14, he says, We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. There's no middle ground option with John. No option of loving the brothers you like to be around or are able to tolerate. No, you can believe all the correct doctrine you want. You can read all the right Christian books. You can have an outwardly upright life, and yet if you do not love the people of God, you are not a Christian. You may object and say, but I love God, I love Jesus, I love learning about him and following him. I can't help that some people just aren't my type. (laughs) I'm sure we all have people that are not our type. But think back on the verses we've considered from chapter 4. John reasons that if you can't love a brother who has been loved by God and is the image of God, how can you love the God 
that you have not seen who created and loved this brother or sister. So John argues from the greater to the lesser. Those who love God love others. So if you're, do, if you're not doing the lesser, there's no way that you can do the greater. And John challenges us to express our love for others, especially other believers, in real practical ways. Like in chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. But if anyone in the, has the world's good and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. In other words, we don't just need doctrinal belief and morality. We need the active love that induces church members to give themselves away to one another. We need to have brotherly affection toward each other. We need to learn to love people who do not look like we do or act as we do. The most honest test of Christian love is whether we love those with whom we have disagreed or have had difficulty. Do we love them? So that's the test that John provides for us. The test of doctrine, the test of morality, and the test of social love toward others. If we just consider briefly 2 John and 3 John, the theme of 2 John is this, that Christians should not support those that are false teachers. Christians should not support false teachers. 2 John verses 10 and 11, if anyone comes to you and does not bring his, his, this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting, for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked words. <laughs> so John's answer to the false teachers, have nothing to do with them. Have nothing to do with them. John tells us that there's a huge difference between what is appropriate in relating to false teachers who claim to be Christians compared with non-Christians who simply recognize themselves to be non-Christians. To non-Christians who know they are non-Christians, we are to show great generosity and hospitality. But we are not to help the person who claims to teach the truth about Jesus, but in fact tells lies about him. So in our increasingly pluralistic religious culture, Many consider it charitable to assume that anyone who calls himself a Christian is in fact one. But this is a dangerous assumption. Just as 1 John called us to examine ourselves to see if we have right doctrine, obedience, and love, which characterize genuine salvation, so 2 John says that to the best of our ability, we have a responsibility to ensure that those we support in ministry are faithful in that ministry and are teaching the truth about Jesus. Now, this call that John makes to not take false teachers into your house is one that we must understand correctly. In that culture, having someone in your house was not only a significant source of support to them, but a sign to the surrounding community that you endorsed what they were doing. For our purposes today, I think we should think of this pattern in those terms. As you think of false teachers, we shouldn't do anything that would get even hint that we affirm or endorse their teaching and do nothing that would directly support such false teaching. So does that mean that you cannot eat with your Muslim coworker or invite your atheist brother for Christmas? Of course not. That's not what that means. But it does mean that we should not give financial and practical support to those who claim the name of Christ but preach a false gospel. 
like Mormons, Jehovah's Witness, those who teach Roman Catholic doctrine. That's the warning that 2 John gives us. So don't support false teaching. And then in 3 John, what John is saying is about why we, uh, the why to extend hospitality to faithful teachers. So don't support false teachers, but in light of that, support faithful teachers. And he gives two examples, Gaius and Diotrephes, who shaped the theme of this book. In 3 John verses 9 through 11, he says, I've written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he was doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and put them out of the church. Beloved, that is Gaius, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. So after commenting on the character of Diotrephes, John says, whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil is not seen God. So while John does not go as far as calling Diotrephes a false teacher in the same mold as those in 1 John, he certainly seems to be pointing to him as an example of what church leaders should not be. And then there's Gaius. Look at verse 5. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for the brothers, strangers as they are. He, he was showing hospitality to true Christian preachers. He loves the brothers. Diotrephes loves who? Himself. Gaius gives out of his own for the brethren. Diotrephes wants to make sure things go his way. So if ever there was one who understood right doctrine, obeyed God's commands, and loved other Christians like 1 John calls us to do, it seems like the example in 3 John is Gaius. And so we read in verses 6 through 8 what Gaius has done and should continue to do. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God, for they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. So who are these men? They seem to be some kind of gospel workers, missionaries perhaps. And hospitality toward them is commanded. It's a pattern we should also follow. So I don't know if you've thought of it before, but when we host a visiting missionary family, like this morning we're going to have Chap with us. He's one of our missionaries. When we're hosting him, or whenever we send money overseas to support families, or when we show hospitality in countless other ways, we aren't just supporting them. Verse 8 says we are working together with them for the truth. We're, we're part of their ministry. So all the more reason for us to look for the most strategic gospel ministry going on in the world and support it, that one day we might find that we've participated with that work for the sake of the Lord. So these three letters give us a picture between real and counterfeit Christianity. How do you know what true love is? First John tells us that we have biblical reasons to evaluate if someone is, if we are, in Christ. Do we affirm the divinity and humanity of Jesus? Do we walk in God's light? Do we love the body of Christ? In Second John, we have instruction on what true love is not. 
It's not supporting and endorsing false teachers who deny Christ. And in 3 John, we have a real-life example of what true love is. A man who walked in the light by opening up his home in love to those who preached the truth about Jesus. So it's my prayer as we think of these three letters that we would be instructed by the stark black and white commands of 1 John, that we would heed the warning of 2 John, and that we would follow the example of Gaius in 3 John. Because as Jesus said, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have loved one another. So let's pray and ask God to give us his love to love others. Father, we thank you that you have loved us and that you've given us Jesus. We pray that you would give us your love toward others that today may even be an example where we can extend love and gratitude and thanksgiving toward a brother who is serving you in New England and abroad to help others disciple young children to walk in the light. Help us to walk in the light, to trust you, and to see you at work in and through us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.